Our theme for this month, our exploration together, is that of becoming. What does it mean to be a people of becoming? Who are we becoming as a people of faith? And I want to root the start of this exploration this week in our history to understand where we have come from and what we have inherited. Now, normally I would do this in an introduction to Unitarian Universalism session with our visitors and new members, where I give what I call my 2,000 years in 20 minutes lecture, which never, ever takes 20 minutes. It always goes 40 to 60. It always takes longer. So I'm going to spare you that this morning and just try to touch on the highlights here. First of all, first of all, that name, Unitarian Universalism, it's a, it's a big name. And where, where does it come from? Well, it comes from the merger of two distinct religions that grew out of two distinct theological perspectives that grew out of the early Christian church. Unitarianism was a theological statement about the nature of God professed by church leaders in the first 200 years of Christianity, bishops like Arius, that God was a unity. God was one being rather than the trinity of a father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as some professed. Now, of course, that theological statement was declared to be a heresy and went underground, but ideas cannot be killed. They always bubble back to the surface, and Unitarianism came back. What started early in Christian history over time transformed to a theology that moved beyond Christianity. It took on a humanistic flair, a unity of humanity, if you will. Indeed, a unity of all creation, an acknowledgement that we all share and come from the same source, ultimately. Now, universalism, too, was an early Christian theological statement about the nature of God, professed in those first 200 years by church figures such as Origen, that a God who is a God of love, a loving God who loves his creation, would not condemn that creation to hell for all eternity, eternity, that we would be universally saved and restored to God at the end of all things. Now, this, too, of course, was declared a heresy and went underground, but you cannot kill an idea, and it bubbles back to surface over the time and moves from a Christian notion of universal salvation to an idea that hell is abolished completely, that there is no hell to be condemned to. Into the 20th century, to a search for not what was universal in salvation, but universal in all religions outside of Christianity and inclusive of it, to over time into the late 20th century and into now an understanding of a universal interdependence among all people, among all creation indeed, an idea that we share a common destiny, we share a common source, we share a common destiny, Unitarian Universalism. Now, today, we might say that Unitarian Universalism is a faith that is seeking a unity amidst all of our diversity as we come to understand that term. Or that we are, in fact, a religion that understands there is something deeper than all of our myriad differences, something that goes deeper, 
amidst all our differences of race and gender and religion and class and what have you, what have you. Something deeper than our differences that binds us all together and connects us to all of creation, to all that is. Now, we describe that something deeper in our principles as a web, an interdependent web. And we describe it that way for some sense of a common understanding amongst us. But we know, too, that the true nature of that deeper something is far too big for any one of us to give a name to it. And we know, too, that even though we share a common understanding of that interdependent web, our own full understanding of that something deeper and our relationship to it grows from each one of our own individual lived experiences and from the inheritances we receive from our families and our cultures and from our own individual sense of self in relationship to all that is. Now the work of understanding that relationship, the relationship of the self to all that is, that is what I call theology. Now each one of us articulates that theology articulates Unitarian Universalism's good news in very personal ways. My own UU gospel has remained mostly unchanged over time. Some of you will recognize it. We are, each one of us, givers and receivers of a deep, unshakable love, a love larger than any one of us, the great heart at the center of everything. We are, each one of us, unquestionably worthy of the lives we are given and worthy of our place in the web of creation. And our lives are invaluable there simply because we are. And we are, each one of us, past, present, and future, inextricably bound together in that something deeper, in that great heart love. And because of that bond, because we are so bound, we cannot, cannot give up on one another. Because I know that my freedom, the freedom of my body, my mind, and my spirit is wholly, utterly dependent upon the freedom of your body and mind and spirit. Now this is... This is heady stuff, I will admit. You might be wondering, and rightly so, what does this all mean on a practical level? And that's an excellent question, because a theology that only lives in my head and never makes it into the outside world is truly no worthy theology. As Sophia Lyons says in her reading, it matters what we believe, and two, it matters how those beliefs lead us to act in the world right here and right now. As I explained to our newcomers, Unitarian Universalism is a religion that asks not what shall we believe, but how shall we live? How shall we be together in the world? So I want to lift up today three stories and some resultant themes that are handed to us from our history to help shine a light 
on what a practical boots on the ground theology of Unitarian Universalism might look at look like. Our first story starts in 1803 when the Universalist Church in America passes one of its first statements of faith, what is called the Winchester Profession. Now, the early Universalists organizing as a church in America were already painfully aware of the great theological differences among their clergy and their laity between Trinitarianism and Unitarianism. For one example, about the nature of Jesus in relationship to God, all of that was in contention. And so the early Universalists here adopted a profession of faith that was phrasing their beliefs in a general term, general terms that embraced all of these differences, that made room for all of these differences amongst their people. And it didn't stop just there. In addition to all of this general phrasing and this attempt to embrace everyone, in 1899, they adopted a freedom clause to that same Winchester profession that said, this profession is commended as containing these principles. But neither this nor any precise form of words is required as a condition for fellowship. Right there is the beginnings of our development as and our understanding of ourselves as a non-creedal faith, the faith without a creed that we are today, a faith where differences in belief are embraced and that there is no single profession of faith to be required to be inside the club. In the place of a creed stands a covenant among us, whether it is stated explicitly or implied by our principles and the way we are together. A covenant that often harkens back to the one I described at the beginning of last month, an agreement of how we shall walk together in the ways of love, known and to be made known. Now there is and has been a historical tension, especially in Western religion, between faith that excludes and faith that embraces all. Our history is one of striving for inclusivity, striving for it. And as such, we have inherited from those who have come before an understanding of a deep love that is not limited to a narrowly defined us, but widens the circle more and more. Our second story begins around about 1835. In that year, William Ellery Channing, the founder of the American Unitarian Association, one of the first Unitarian, officially Unitarian ministers in this country, began vocally denouncing slavery, both from his pulpit in Boston and in essays and other writings. Now, strange as it may seem, this was not a popular stance in the Unitarianism of the day, where perhaps today we would say, of course, it's a no-brainer. We would be against slavery. It wasn't so easy then, because while the elite of Boston who sat in the pews of Channing's Unitarian Church might turn their noses up at the idea of slavery, 
they were also painfully aware, although they might not confess it out loud, that, that their fortunes, the very thing that made them the elite of Boston, were tightly, tightly dependent on slavery's continuation. But as long as it was just out of sight and the money rolled in, I guess, folks, we were just fine with it. Channing's Unitarian Christianity, his sense of what that meant, including the dignity of human beings, led him to a position of proclaiming that very dignity and humanity for the slave. And an endless profession that slavery must end for the sake of the slave's rights and dignity. He began his major essay on the subject thus. The first question, he wrote, to be proposed by a rational being is not what is profitable, but what is right. What is right and not what is profitable. A frightening message for some of his people to hear sitting in the pews, a message that directly challenged the very cherished status quo of his most well-to-do parishioners. Now, the anecdotal history says that those same congregants, so threatened and discomforted by what he was saying and what he was writing, would cross to the other side of the street rather than walk by him, so furious they were with him. And indeed, his refusal to stop preaching on the matter is one of the things that led to his eventual resignation of his pulpit. There is an ongoing tension, still today even, between religion used as a tool of empire, of status quo, of profit and power, and religion used as a tool of liberation. Our history, our inheritance from it, is one of striving toward that liberation breaking the cycle of the status quo and striving for liberation. As such, we have inherited a sense of that deeper something, a sense of that big love that insists that wherever the status quo means separation from one another, means oppression of one over the other, insists that we channel that love toward the breaking and dismantling of that status quo despite whatever discomfort it might bring us. Our third and final story begins around about 1965. Martin Luther King was organizing the Selma to Montgomery marches for voting rights. He knew he needed allies on his side. He knew especially he needed white allies on his side to increase the impact of his actions. Now, the story goes that King called the Unitarian Universalist Association headquarters one day asking for people to come down. And it just so happened the board was meeting in session at that time. And they answered the call and heard what King was asking, asking us to come down and march with him. And the board adjourned right then and there and moved down to Selma to reconvene. Indeed, dozens of Unitarian Universalist clergy and laity would answer that call from King and arrive in Selma and follow the lead 
of a Christian minister and his associate. Follow the lead of those living in the thick of the consequences of the Jim Crow South. For some of those who made the trip, for James Reeb and for Viola Yuso, that would mean the end of their lives. There is in history an ongoing tension in religions, even today, between carrying a savior mentality and carrying a servant mentality. The former says, if you join that narrow us, that inner circle, and you assimilate to that us, you will be saved. And the latter, the servant mentality says that we will offer what is ours. We will offer our resources. We will offer all that is our privilege in service of your liberation. Just tell us where we need to go. Our history is one of striving toward the servant mentality. From abolition to civil rights, to LGBT rights, to Black Lives Matter and other liberation movements of today, we aspire to an ideal given to us that says Unitarian Universalists show up when justice calls. And as such, we have inherited from those who came before a sense of that deep, big love that demands we show up for those who suffer injustice and demands that we stay in accountable relationship with them. Now, this is not our whole history. This is not the entirety even of these stories that I am sharing with you. There is always complexity to a story. There is always more history that defines who we are. And not all of it is triumphant or happy or a source of pride. But this is a part of the story of who we are when we are at our best. This is part of what we might choose to claim as our faith's inheritance. A love that does not exclude. A love that calls us to challenge the small-minded powers of the status quo. A love that calls us to show up in service to the suffering and the oppressed. This is where I want to start. This is the part of the story I want to tell of how we started.